0: Someone warm them from below Till the rain comes tumbling down Pulling weeds and picking stones Man is made of dreams and bones Feel the need to grow my own Cause the time is close at hand Grain for grain, sun and rain Find my way in nature's chain Tune my body and my brain To the music from the land Inch by inch, row by row Oh, to make this garden grow All it takes is a rake and a hoe And a piece of fertile ground Inch by inch, row by row Someone blessed and the garden song means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. Lois Richter is off today. Today's date is, should check my trusty calendar, May 30th, 2019. And the temperature right now is a lovely 70 degrees here in the Sacramento Valley. And actually yesterday, May 29th, was the first day in the last three weeks that our temperature was above average. Going up to a high today of 82 degrees this afternoon with a low tonight of 59. Friday will be 88. Friday night will be kind of warm at 60 degrees. Saturday, going to hit 90 degrees for the second time this year. Saturday night will be 60 degrees and cooling a bit. Sunday, back to 88. Sunday night, 61. Monday, 92. And the models seem to be in agreement with Tuesday and Wednesday looking at 94 degrees and nighttime kind of warm, 64, 65 degrees on Tuesday and Wednesday night of next week. In fact, the weather discussion is that all the storms are pretty much gone at this point. We had a lot of late season rain here in the month of May in the Sacramento Valley. And uh, we're going to be finally getting into more of a summer pattern. We've got um, extended discussion Monday through Thursday as the upper low will keep a threat of afternoon showers or thunderstorms over the higher terrain of the Sierra Nevada. Upper ridging, as they say, then becomes the main feature over northern California with dry, dry weather. Excuse me, and high temperatures five to 15 degrees above normal. We spent almost three weeks in the month of May quite a bit below normal. And uh, if you're a local listener and get the Davis Enterprise, or if you want to go online and see my article that will be appearing in the Enterprise in the next couple of days, that was the main focus of it, was the impact of almost three weeks of not just below average temperatures, but I mean way below average temperatures, and the fact that we got three inches of rainfall all over the area, very close to three inches in the area, when we normally get about half an inch in the month of May. Lots of disease issues, lots of weeds continuing to grow, lots of pests coming a little bit later than usual or continuing a little bit later than usual. We'll talk more about that a little bit later in the show. First of all, though, we do want to thank all of you who donated during our recent fundraiser, but if you haven't given yet, there is still time to show your support. You can just go to kdrt.org, look for the Donate button, and don't forget to check out our thank you gifts. So that's kdrt.org slash donate. Thanks again for supporting Community Radio KDRT 95.7 FM in Davis, where the grassroots grow. Events coming up at the UC Davis Arboretum. It's getting towards the end of their season for... The regularly scheduled things because they follow the school year calendar, but let's see, on June 12th, you can go on a walk with Warren. Wednesday Walk with Warren will be June 12th, noon to 1 p.m. Join Warren Roberts, Superintendent Emeritus of the UC Davis Arboretum, famous storyteller and punster, for an always-engaging noontime exploration of spring, or you might say early summer. It's feeling very spring-like still in terms of what's blooming. In the UC Davis Arboretum's gardens and collections for this one, you'll meet at the Arboretum Gazebo. June 12th at noon, that's at the west end of the Arboretum. For information about that or a map to the location, go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu. A little further out in the summer, for those of you with kids, uh, the Camp Shakespeare 2019, the campers will explore two productions from The 2019 season, the 10th Muse and the Comedy of Errors, through theater games, acting workshops, and a culminating show. This takes place in the Arboretum. Campers will sharpen their performance skills while having a blast. That goes from July 8th through August 2nd, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Arboretum Gazebo is the event location. More details of that, obviously, you're going to need to look that one up at arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Looks like they may have already scheduled their fall plant sales. Let me see if they've got the dates on these, and I can get you to mark them on your calendar. Uh, Yeah, looks like they've got them down for October 12th and November 2nd for the fall plant sales. Fall plant sales and spring plant sales at the Arboretum are big fundraisers for them and help support their ongoing projects. All right, let's take a little stock on this weird weather. got a bunch of questions from you folks, and I'll certainly get to them. And I appreciate all the email questions. That's a great way to go, especially when... Lois is off because then I can do my research ahead of time. But uh, let's talk about this weather here. And this goes for much of Northern California and actually much of Southern California. For those of you out of the area, you may just be amused by this, what we're grumbling about here. I've been reading about, you know, the weather back east and in the upper Midwest and places like that. So we'll sound like whiners. I, I agree. But during the last two, almost three weeks, we've been on average 13 degrees below our typical high for the day. And a couple of those days, one day we actually only got to 58 degrees when our average high at this time of year is 82 degrees. So that has had an effect, obviously, but even more significant in some ways, nighttime low temperatures have been significantly below average, several degrees below our typical or average low temperatures for the night. And unfortunately, that's well below the temperature. In some cases, we got to 48. One morning, we got to 43 degrees, and we typically would be in the mid-50s. Uh, This is well below the temperatures that are preferred by subtropical plants. Subtropical plants are a huge part of our gardening, landscaping, and uh, uh, our plant palette here, if you will. Many, most, all of the summer vegetables we grow are subtropical or tropical plants. And so these are plants that like warm nights, warm days, warm soil. We haven't had any of those. Uh, Soil temperatures at mid-month actually began dropping. I monitor this at the IPM site, ucdavis.edu. You'll find weather models there. And uh, I was finding that it was dropping for one five-day period, one degree a day for over five days, which means that the soil temperatures were getting back to almost March levels from where they had been finally eking their way up to what was suitable for our summer vegetables. Uh, at one point, it, was, it had dropped down to a typical late-March soil temperature. We had about 3 inches of rain, 2.88 inches. As I said earlier, we only typically get at most a half an inch in the month of May. That's fine. The soil was saturated, and so that's good. You all were able to avoid a couple of irrigations. But of particular note, for disease concerns, we had a four-day period where it rained intermittently and where there was no break in the cloud cover and that is fungus paradise that just means that the uh, the moisture conditions on the leaf surfaces very much favor inoculation infection and spread of a whole range of diseases um, most dramatic effect in agriculture was that the cherry crop right before memorial day weekend was pretty much ruined uh, cherries if they're turning red getting to the point of getting ready to pick if it rains onto the fruit water right on the fruit is absorbed rapidly and the the skin has already you know essentially hardened over, and the fruit bursts. it splits. I was able to find examples of this on my own cherry tree, so I took a picture of it, which may be used in the article that 's in the enterprise. Fruit splitting or fruit cracking like that destroys the fruit for commercial purposes. You can stand there and eat them at your tree there 's nothing wrong with the fruit, but it spoils immediately when that happens and so uh, one according to one um, of these agricultural articles that I get by email. The crop went from a projected 10 million 18-pound boxes down to about 6 to 7 million after the rain finished. So that's a pretty substantial percentage loss of the cherry crop. And, of course, all the early strawberries that were ripening, and a lot of the strawberry growers were just rotted right in the field. Um, These things are also happening in your garden to some extent. And I heard, of course, out in the orchards all around me, they were out spraying like crazy before that storm came in trying to get fungicide sprays on the trees. Home gardeners aren't doing that. There's no practical way for you to do that. So now over the next week or so, I have a whole litany, but I won't go through them, of all the disease problems that came in in samples to my nursery. And a couple dozen of of things that we don't normally get a lot of here, like brown rot. um, on The stone fruits going all the way into May, fire blight continuing and so forth. So a lot of the disease problems we had talked about previously uh, were continuing much longer than usual and causing more damage. Particular note, though, of ones that were, are not common here: um, late blight on tomatoes. A couple of samples causing rapid dieback on the leaves and, and some stems of the plant. Depending on where it is, in our area, I just suggest prune that out as fast as you can, and hope for the best. And warmer, drier weather will take care of it. And, for, and those of you who live in rainy climates know that when you've got late blight, there's a pretty good chance you'll probably want to replace the plant. But here. This was a short-duration event and probably will be a short you know, period of infection. The only problem is that um, they can do a lot of damage in a very short period of time. Uh, the other was something we don't commonly see much here, which is anthracnose on cucumbers, spots on the leaves and a whole lot of leaf damage. Uh, You look that up and you'll find all kinds of information from Clemson University and Cornell and places like that. Uh, We see it, but not very commonly here. But then we also don't very commonly get that much rain in the month of May. So that's probably the biggest factor there. We also, of course, have seen a lot of the typical damage like earwigs and slugs and snails and so forth continuing. So one that was brought in that, that we deal with pretty uncommonly here that I do think people might want to be aware of is the botrytis mold that attacks roses and marigolds and big heavy petaled flowers like that just as they're opening if it's raining sort of continuously and the droplets stand on them this mold just, just like the one just like the mold you get on things like strawberries will get in there and do some damage and uh, continue if it continues wet and continues moderate temperature it will continue to rot into the flower into the stem even partway down into the plant in the nursery, when it's raining like that, we just shake the plants off periodically, and that really makes a big difference. Just shake off those droplets, and, and that will prevent the problem from getting much worse. Deadheading, old charming term for removing spent blossoms or damaged blossoms, can make a big difference in that situation. So if you have the patience, cutting back those roses that go, look moldy, will make a difference in preventing it from splashing to other flowers. The main thing is, almost all of these problems are going to correct now that we're getting to warmer drier weather. Our humidities in next week will be down in the 15 to 25% range by mid-afternoon. That'll dry out all these fungus diseases. So for us the problem will solve itself, but these are things that people are seeing. More to the point, the cold soil, cold temperatures are causing what I plant pathologists like to call abiotic disorders simply meaning problems that don't have a biological origin, uh, an environmental or physiological problem, cold soil, wet soil, causing poor uptake of nitrogen, causing uh, new growth to be stunted on peppers, things like that. Um, Again, these will grow out of it, but it went on for so long that if you jumped the gun and planted your peppers and eggplant, just as two classic examples, or okra or watermelons back in April or even early May, Those plants are set way back now, and it might be worth, I would monitor them, it might be worth looking in one, two, three weeks as to whether they've started to put on some new growth, replace them, or add new ones nearby if you have room enough for that kind of thing. So the temperatures that we want to see are the ones we're getting this coming week, where the nights are going to be in the 50s and even into the 60s. Not very comfortable for us when it's that warm at night, but better for these plants that we like to grow so much for the summer garden. And while I always talk about vegetables and fruit trees, There are some flowers that have been pretty affected by this as well. There's things that love the heat that we like to sell here because they do so well when it starts to get hot. uh, Verbena, zinnias, annual vinca, portulaca, cosmos, lantana. Those are all good examples of heat-loving annuals and perennials that we like to plant when the weather is getting really warm. And they're available in April. And a lot of us and a lot of the bigger stores were selling them then. And they're just sulking. They're just sitting there. Well, the good news is almost all of those are very vigorous plants that will regrow or start to grow and start to bloom pretty soon. They'll just be kind of a delay. And they're actually things that go in really well when the weather is hotter. So uh, let me get to your questions now. Uh, let's start with, uh, let's see, Danielle. Danielle is from, I don't know where. Uh, anyway, send it by email. My question is about vegetable gardening and weed control sprays. Just for the record, folks, I'm talking to a lot of people about certain weed control products in the last few weeks because they've been in the news. But this is a different group. After moving into a new house, I found out that the previous owner sprayed a broadleaf weed control spray. It's the key part, broadleaf weed control spray, about six months ago. I have three small kids who would like to do some vegetable gardening, but I'm concerned about harmful chemicals getting into the vegetables we may consume. Is there a certain amount of time I should wait? It's been over six months, but I'm still a little worried. I read that you can plant sunflowers to help get some of the chemicals out. I was also thinking that a lot of the vegetables at the store are sprayed, even the organic ones. So, of course, this is why I want to plant my own vegetable garden. But is a broadleaf weed killer worse than what is sprayed on vegetables? Do I have any options? Thank you, Danielle. All right. Um... When it's always good when you get this kind of information, if you can possibly find out exactly what was sprayed. And I've done this with people. I mean, I'm happy to look things up, and I know how and where to look them up. And I've had customers who were concerned about the product that their termite control company was using, or things like that. I said, "Well, get the label. Ask them, please, to send you the label. They they have it. Uh, so that's even better information. We don't have that here, but we do know that it was called a broadleaf weed control spray. So it's not glyphosate. That's an everything spray." It's not, it's something that was specifically used, we presume, for broadleaf weeds, typically dandelions and clover and things like that. When you say broadleaf weeds, we're talking about non-grass plants. Broadleaf weed control sprays are usually used to kill weeds in your lawn, and that's the classic term for them. Typical is one uh, generically called Trimec. So that's usually got three active ingredients. 24D, MCPP and dicamba. Now you could Google those individually, but you don't need to do that because your question is how long they last in the soil. So individually I can tell you that 24D, which is well known, breaks down in the soil. about half-life is about 1 to 14 days. This is six months later. So you're, you're you know in terms of that aspect of it, it's not an issue. MCPP, uh, soil activity about two months the outside. And dicamba is actually a relatively short half-life, typically just a, a couple weeks, although in some unique situations, as much as 120 days, again, it's been six months. So if it was that typical broadleaf weed killer, I know you're not happy about it having been used there, but in terms of plants taking it up and being any concern to you, any risk to you, I would say I would not be concerned about it myself. They have broken down or they're almost sufficiently gone that there shouldn't be any concern. And the other one that's sometimes used is a product called triclopyr, which has a half-life of about 30 days. So six months later, any of those things that are used for broadleaf weeds should be essentially out of there to the point that it would not be any concern in terms of safety. You do raise an interesting question. Yes, every vegetable or thing you buy at the store has been sprayed, organic or otherwise. People have a common misconception that organic produce is not sprayed. They are sprayed. They get pests just like normal farmers do, you know, conventional farmers do. They simply use pesticides that are certified organic. Uh, and so there is some residue, what we call some pesticide residue, on any kind of fruit or vegetable that you buy, very likely. It's always recommended that you rinse them. That's totally different than root uptake of an herbicide. But six months out, all the things I can think of, all the common broadleaf weed killers, you should be perfectly safe planting and shouldn't have any issue with that. As for those of you who might be questioning about glyphosate, she's not question here because this was not that kind of weed killer, but the half-life of glyphosate in the soil is typically, oh, uh, a couple of weeks. It ranges quite a bit depending on the soil type. I mean, way outside range is 200 days, but that's an unusual soil situation. It can be as little as two, by the way, two days. It's not active once it's in the soil. So that's a whole different conversation. But it's inactivated, tightly bound to soil particles, degraded rather quickly. So as far as that kind of thing goes, that aspect of glyphosate is not a concern in this case. I live in Antioch, and I have three fruit trees I'm hoping you can help me with. Great pictures. This is from, uh, let's see, who was it? David in Antioch. Antioch, for those of you who don't know, we have one out here in the Bay Area. We're not talking about the one back east. Uh, Kiefer lime which is used for Thai cooking, blood orange, and oro blanco grapefruit. And uh, the first part of this is that the uh, well, kefir lime is grown for the leaves, and but many of them are spotted and brown, attached photos, uh, the spotting on citrus is usually edema. Edema just is a Greek word for spot, so that's not terribly meaningful, but it's not usually a pathogen. It's not usually a disease. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but in most cases, it is just a physiological phenomenon in response to some sort of fluctuating temperature or extreme weather condition. So that's not a concern. Um, and as long as the plant's growing vigorously, I, I don't think it actually has a specific cause in terms of an organism or an insect. It's just a weather-related thing commonly, you can prune off the leaves that bother you, and the plant will grow vigorously. In the case of kefir lime, you're not growing it for the fruit, you're, although they're interesting. They're growing it for the leaves to chop into Thai cooking. So as long as you've got vigorous growth coming on it, you should be fine. Uh, we'll get back to general care in just a moment. The blood orange fell victim to the drought years. By the way, I've had three emails in the last two weeks that are very similar. So this kind of covers a range of conditions around Northern California, apparently during from what was done in some cases where people just shut off their watering. Tree fell victim to the drought years, making a comeback, after hard pruning of the dead parts of the tree, I've begun actively mulching the entire bed for all three trees. That's good, always good. This tree is the first that there was not a, this year is the first that there was not a single flower or fruit. What should I be doing this year to help the tree reestablish itself and hopefully be productive next year? The Orobanco grapefruit been several years since this tree has been productive. This year it looks like only a single fruit will be produced. Also fell victim to the drought years is making a comeback after hard pruning of the dead parts of the tree. What should I be doing to help it reestablish itself and hopefully be productive next year? And then another part to this question that I'll get to in a moment. First thing to do is look and make sure that the nice growth that's coming up because you've begun giving it better treatment is not coming from below the graft union. Uh, That's very important because every citrus, virtually every citrus that you buy, with a few exceptions, almost every citrus that you buy is grafted onto a rootstock. It's not on its own roots. And so if if, uh, something is sprouting from below ground or near the ground level, you need to get down very closely and look, and look for a scar on the stem, which is even visible on older trees. And usually, it's up a few inches above the ground. If the tree was properly planted, anything coming from above that point, vigorous or not, is is the actual tree—the Oro Blanco or the Blood Orange. Anything from below that point is rootstock. And The root stocks that are used for citrus vary, but they're mostly hybrids—Citrange uh, or Sour Orange or things like that—which are very vigorous, but Not only do they not fruit for a long time, the fruit is not edible. It's very sour and bitter. They're used because they confer vigor to the tree or particular dwarfing characteristics or better disease resistance or whatever that particular grower was using that particular rootstock for. They aren't always perfect. We've had cases where rootstocks were used for a number of years and then showed decline for one reason or another. But it doesn't sound like that's your situation here. But first is to look and make sure you don't have uh, root suckers coming up. When a citrus is rejuvenated and you start feeding it and start watering it and you prune it hard, you often stimulate new growth that is what we call juvenile. It may be above the graft union, but it grows like a sucker. We, technically, we always call those water sprouts rather than suckers because they're still the orange or the grapefruit or the whatever it is that you planted, but they're juvenile wood, and it's recognizably different. It usually has angular stems instead of round stems. It often has pronounced and painful thorns. And it will grow very vigorously, often several feet in a season. And since it's juvenile, plants actually in many cases have a specific hormonal phase change they go through before they will flower and fruit. And in the case of citrus, it can be several years before that juvenile wood will get to that hormonal phase change, as we call it, and flower and fruit. And so it may be quite a while if you have these vigorous shoots that you've been encouraging before those actually fruit. Commercial orchard growers typically remove them because it takes that long for them to produce fruit. If you're trying to rejuvenate a tree, probably not a bad idea to leave them, especially if they're well positioned to be part of the long-term canopy of the tree, but it will be quite a while before those fruit. Um, The ones that has fruited a bit in the past and is not fruiting on that same wood, those same branches... May they'll just get into an alternate bearing pattern. Uh, it was so stressed by the drought that this year is going to be focusing on growth. Next year it'll flower and fruit. The following year it'll recover from that and so forth. Some citrus are, are well known for that. Satsuma mandarins. My satsumas had so much fruit last, last winter, uh, 500 to 800 per tree, that um, they're flowering very lightly this year. And it's a known phenomenon. And it's true of certain other fruit trees as well. So we call it alternate bearing. Uh, It's not true of every citrus, but it is true to some degree. So I think it's just a matter of being patient for that. But you may have juvenile wood, you may have root suckers. So those are the first two two things to be aware of. When citrus have been neglected, they can recover. Pruning them out will stimulate new growth. That new growth may be juvenile and may take a while to flower and fruit. Don't let that deter you from doing that. It's good for the tree to get it rejuvenated. Make a nice basin around the tree. I'll take a hoe or a cultivator, and I'll make a nice wide basin. That's the the width of the entire canopy, the entire drip line of the tree. Uh, I do like to feed them to try and get them to grow again, even though, again, that's often stimulating, that kind of juvenile growth. I want to recover the tree. I'm less focused on the fruit condition for a year or two of recovery. And then uh, feed them perhaps in the spring and early summer is a typical feeding pattern. When you water, fill that whole basin with water, make sure they're getting a very thorough soaking, and then go as long as you can, as long as your soil allows, before you water them again. And that may be a week, it may be two weeks, depending on whether your soil is sandy or more clay end of things. Uh, Really good soaking every 7 to 14 days, with a good feeding every season, let's say, you know, spring and early summer. will probably get them back on track prune out the dead stuff, and and monitor to make sure that you haven't inadvertently created a tree that's mostly rootstock. I have an orange tree that was suffered in the 1991 freeze in our area. It was actually killed at the stump, and I cut it off without much hope of what was going to happen. It re-sprouted. I was very, very pleased. It was more than three years before it flowered and fruited again, and to this day, that was a 1991 freeze, uh, 2001, it's been a while. Um... I have root suckers that come up on the north side of that tree that I have to keep cutting off, and I have to monitor them pretty closely because they're more vigorous than the rest of the tree and will outgrow it if I allow them to. Now you go on, uh, and this is an important discussion. This year's Pest du Jour appears to be spider mites, which took hold without me knowing it during the spring. I have deployed ladybugs and used an organic enzyme product called the Amazing Dr. Zymes. <laughs> Amazing Dr. Zymes. I had to do a little research on that one. The infestation has decreased but has not been eradicated. If the population increases again, I'll most likely use Captain Jack's Dead Bug Brew. Don't you love these names? All right. um, And I've held off as I have a nice population of beneficial insects, butterflies, and bees in my garden. Do not want to disrupt that balance. First of all, I had to look up the amazing Dr. Zymes. I'm a retail nursery owner, and I get people coming in all the time trying to sell me these different products. And the first thing I will say is, may I see the label? Because I want to know what the active ingredient is, and I want to do some independent research about the efficacy of this product that is being promoted for whatever. This particular one makes some amazing claims about the range of that it will control, and uh, a lot of what I would call fairly pseudoscientific jargon on their website about it, uh, claiming the enzymes do this and the enzymes do that. But when you finally, with some effort, find a label, which, by the way, is not on their website, that's a huge red flag for me. The first thing you should have on your website is the label of the product so people can look at it, see what's in it, see what the active ingredients are, and see what the signal words are. You know, if it's caution, great, that's a pretty low toxicity. If it's warning, that's more toxic, and you want to be aware of that. You want to read the precautionary statements. You want to know more about the product before you buy it. But I did find a label, Thanks you, thank you Amazon, of the product, and it turns out that the amazing Dr. Zyme's active ingredient is citric acid. Um, and then everything else is listed as other ingredients, which means they're not claiming their active, their effectiveness for pest control. In other words, they're not saying these other things in there are what are doing it. The active ingredient is citric acid. The other ingredients, and this is the ready-to-use version is 0.05% citric acid. Apparently, you can buy a more concentrated version as well. The 99.95% other ingredients are water, yeast, and potassium sorbate. Honestly, sounds like a beverage, but it's not. Don't, Don't rush out to drink it. Uh, Citric acid is actually a common folk remedy for mites and other insects. You will find that online. Now, at low doses, it actually does kill those things. At high doses, it burns the leaves. Citric acid is also used as an herbicide. So, uh, obviously, you don't want to be making your your own version at home um, because there's always the risk that you'll just toast your plants. It's actually sold in a bunch of different products and labeled for mites and other insects, uh, the thing is, I actually studied mites when I was a student. I did a m- bunch of papers on spider mites just because I was curious about them. And uh, so I've kind of kept up on the research just because of that. My focus was strawberries, but, you know, there's, there's certainly plenty of other issues with spider mites in our industry, nursery industry, as well as, as agricultural crops. They're very, very, very difficult to control. Uh, you'll never eradicate them and probably shouldn't even consider that your goal. The reason they're so difficult to control is that they have a very rapid population cycle, very high fecundity rate, very high reproductive rate, particularly during higher temperatures. And it's easier to kill the predaceous mites, the things that are eating them, than it is to kill them. So almost anything you spray that's labeled for spider mites, there's a very high likelihood, unless you do a bunch of research and make sure of this, there's a very high, make sure that it doesn't, there's a very high likelihood that it's going to kill the predaceous mites as well as the spider mites. And the spider mites will rebound very quickly, and the predaceous mites will rebound more slowly. So you'll have to spray again, and again, and again, and again. And the more you spray, as we say, the more you'll have to spray, because you're killing off the things that would be controlling the spider mites. So rather than trying to control them directly, your best bet is to make the environment less hospitable for them. In our area, in the valley, uh, the biggest mite problem we deal with is the two-spot spider mite. The name is very appropriate. Take a 10-power hand lens, look closely at it, you'll see two spots on it. In coastal areas in Southern California, you're mostly dealing with red spider mite, which are red. Not to be confused with this red predaceous mite that you commonly see in the area as well. In both cases, they like a dusty leaf surface in order to get what we might call a good foothold and start spinning their, their webs and making their homes there. And uh, they like certain types of leaves. But the main thing is they, they can be washed off surprisingly easily. And washing them off suppresses the population. But the, washing them off does not dramatically impact the population of predaceous mites. So rinsing plants, just as we talk about for aphids and whiteflies and other pests, rinsing plants is one of the most effective things you can do for spider mite. Now, you're talking about Captain Jack's dead bug brew, which is one of my favorite pesticide names. That's spinosad. It is an organic spray. It's become very widely used by organic farmers because it is a broad-spectrum insecticide that replaces some of those conventional pesticides that they can't use, and home gardeners have taken to it in a big way. Um, When I go to do independent research on the efficacy, as we say, that's your Google search term, the efficacy of Captain Jack's or spinosad or spinosin as a miticide, up comes this interesting sentence: The miticidal activity of this material is due mainly to the surfactants and other inert ingredients. So generally, they've taken spinosad and put a soap-like material in there uh, to help it you know, spread out on the leaf better and give better coverage and perhaps stick better. And they're, what they're saying is that the spinosad itself isn't really doing the job; it's those other things that are doing the job. It's uh, quite quite toxic to bees if you spray it directly on them, so you know, not great for your 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 pollinators. And direct contact can cause significant mortality to Phytoseiulus persimilis. Phytoseiulus persimilis is one of the most important predaceous spider mite eaters out there. And so you're spraying something that gives some control of the spider mites and killing the things that would be eating them. So again, the Captain Jacks is going to cause rebound. It'll kill them. It'll seem like you're getting control. They'll rebound faster than the beneficials because that's how it works. You'll have to spray again and again and again. You'll get on the treadmill of having to spray. Whereas if you could stabilize the environment, probably the spider mite problem would be less severe and wouldn't harm the plants that much. So I generally urge you to focus in almost always with spider mites on keeping the plants clean avoiding pesticide use in general because most pesticides are more harmful to the beneficials that eat spider mites than to the spider mites themselves and resist the temptation to do a series of sprays because the other biggest issue with spider mites is their populations develop resistance to pesticides very, very rapidly. Almost everything that used to be labeled for spider mite control no longer works on it. And that is because they develop uh, resistance almost faster than any other pest group I can think of in the in the world of, you know, outside of the fungus. So spider mites in particular are very challenging to manage, especially in greenhouses, but also in the landscape. So I suggest that you just vigorously rinse. Get your citrus on a good feeding schedule. Don't worry too much about the presence of some spider mites and learn to recognize, if you can, that predaceous mite because if you're finding those present, they're going to start doing a pretty good job of controlling the spider mites directly. So I would would urge you all to um, read more carefully on the labels of things that you're buying because in some cases they may be counterproductive. The citric acid sprays, used carefully, can kill aphids. They can do a good job on things like that. They actually have it labeled for fungus gnats in your house plants, which is probably probably one of the better things you could think of. It wouldn't smell so bad. Um, but I would think a lot of the things on their label would be of questionable questionable value. So, okay. Have you heard about a disease killing olive trees in the Mediterranean? What about here? Yes, I have. I've been following this very closely. There's a disease that is killing olive trees all around the Mediterranean, and it is uh, spread by, it's uh, called Xylella fastidiosa, and it is spread by the same insect, it's it's the same disease, I should say, that's killing oleanders in southeastern California. So uh, in our case, the vector for that disease, the insect that carries the disease is the glassy-winged sharpshooter, showed up in California back in the 1990s. It happens that that sharpshooter carries that disease also to grapevines, and uh, causes a, a problem on grapevines that kills a significant percentage of them. Generally on the margins of the vineyard, so they keep having to replace them. But it can, in the uh, Temecula area, I believe it killed about 25 percent of the grapevines before they finally could just start adopting different planting and management practices and basically spraying a lot for it. In the 1990s, the state of California, when I was on the state nursery board, implemented a quarantine for the movement of nursery stock uh, to prevent the spread of the glass sharpshooter into northern California. And so we hope that, since that has worked and is in place and is effective, uh, that that will keep this from spreading any, the same disease from oleanders up onto olive trees in northern California. I assume it's the same. I know it's the same disease, whether it's the same strain of that disease. I don't know for sure. But in our case, unlike in parts of Europe where they figured this out too late, we already have a quarantine process in place. So hopefully our olive trees here in Northern California will be safe. Um, Next question here. Anything new about cherry vinegar fly? No. (laughs) Didn't I answer that last week? Um, it's, It's cherry harvest season, and many people are going out to harvest their cherries and finding them full of worms. And so uh, the spotted wing drosophila, which makes it so that each cherry fruit has like eight or ten wriggling little worms in it, grosses people out, needless to say. And the problem when you get it is really bad. And so every year I get a number of people coming in. I heard about this problem. Isn't there anything that solves this? No, there is nothing new on the market that has taken care of the fruit fly problem on your cherries. The Spotted Wing Drosophila is now in every cherry-growing region of the country, and if you go online, you'll find a lot of information about what farmers are doing about it. The bottom line is they're spraying a lot. If you ask the farmers at the farmer's market, who have really nice cherries, what they're doing about Spotted Wing Drosophila, they'd probably prefer not to have that conversation in the earshot of a bunch of other customers because the answer will be organic or conventional. They're having to spray frequently as the fruit is ripening to get worm-free fruit. Uh, they're using spinosad, which I mentioned before, or if they're organic, they're using something like malathion. If they're not, there's about eight other different products they can use. But the key is the number of applications, which is typically three to five applications as the fruit is ripening. So you should be aware of that. Rinse your fruit when you buy it, whether it's organic or conventional. Uh, there's been some two different processes that people have been using with variable but pretty good results. One is um, it's called the Agribon method for the brand of row cover that was used for preventing spotted-wing drosophila on cherries. 2012, when this problem hit in a big way in the Sacramento Valley, Chuck Ingalls and a couple of the others did a project out of the Fair Oaks Community Garden where they built a frame of PVC around the cherry trees and very securely attached agribon, which is row cover, ceiling blanket, You sell, it, we sell it as frost blanket in the wintertime, very securely attached that all the way around, essentially pulled a cage around the tree and covered it with this material, this sort of spun material. They were concerned about the temperature in there getting too high, and that wasn't a problem. It does breathe enough, so that wasn't an issue. They immediately had a problem with some kind of rodent tearing its way in. They had to patch like several holes at the ground level within the first day or so after installing it. It did keep the fruit completely worm-free. So this does tell us that if you can exclude the fruit flies from the fruit, you can get worm-free fruit. You know, what I've been suggesting to people here is, you know, if you've got one branch that's got a lot of fruit on it, before it turns color, so it's too late for this year, before it turns color, wrap that branch with frost blanket and attach it really tightly with clothespins, and those fruit at least will be free of worms. Uh, there's been some research up in Michigan on the benefits of very close mowing or spraying out the weeds underneath the orchard so it's bare dirt. And then pruning the trees to get a more open habit for better air movement. And that is reducing the populations in those orchards. I don't think that's a practical field application for home gardeners. Uh, So I don't know that that makes that much difference to those of you growing them in your backyard. But there is some work on trying to mitigate the environment to control the spotted wing drosophila. For the most part, what it comes down to is they have to spray a lot. You could spray a lot. Most of my customers aren't willing to do that. And you probably don't have the equipment to do it well. And so, pretty much, the spotted wing Drosophila has become a real limiting factor on growing cherries. I don't sell them, I don't recommend them. Some nurseries do, but they're gonna hopefully tell you that you're gonna to have to spray for it. And that can be really challenging. I mean, it, to me, if someone comes in and wants to buy a cherry tree and it's like a family and they've got their kids there and they're all gung ho about it, I don't want them coming back in three years and saying, my, my fruit's all full of worms. What can I do about it? I have to look at them and say, uh, Nothing, sorry. So I just don't sell cherry trees. Okay, um, we are supposed to tell you about some of the other great programming here. And there is a show, a long-running show here, that is dedicated to the sounds of the Grateful Dead called The Golden Road. You can get on the bus with KDRT, travel The Golden Road, exploring the sounds of the Grateful Dead along with the other fine musicians from Northern California and beyond. Join the host, Alligator, for recordings from The Dead's live shows along with Jerry Garcia's fine solo works, both electric electric. And acoustic. Tune in Friday evening, 7 to 9 p.m. for a full dose of Grateful Dead right here on KDRT for replay time. Visit caterit.org and click the schedule tab. Uh let's see here. From Claire in Santee. Santee's in Southern California. Superbloom. You folks are probably reading about the Super Bloom in the desert. Well, the Super Bloom was all over Southern California, and that all that rain that they got was great. And it meant, as she says, super weeds for us. That's right. Our front, side, and backyards, which had been completely barren, filled up with four to six foot high sow thistle and common mallow. Dramatic photo attached. She did. It was a great picture up to my chest. <laughs> I've had this on my own property, so, but it's more of a more common up here in Northern California. Even worse, the weeds went to seed before we had time to address the issue. So we dug the weeds up in the front, sometimes dealing with 12 inch tap roots. But our side and backyards are too large to do the same there. If we whack them down and then black bag the entire yard, cover it over with something, I guess, uh, will that kill them and bake the seeds that are in the soil? not looking for 100% efficacy, just trying to minimize the problem in the future after we put in our desired plants. We cannot afford to hire someone to help, unfortunately. That is a tough one. I have dealt with cheeseweed is my name for the common mallow, malva, palustris, I think it is, and... um, You know, when we first bought our property, I thought it was fine. Didn't really worry too much about it. Cute little tiny hollyhock-like flower, nice round leaves, and I I left a little bit of it. Everywhere I left a little bit of it, pretty soon I had a patch 10 or 15 feet across. One of the things I've noticed about common mallow in particular, and south thistle follows this pattern somewhat too, it can actually germinate at any time of year. Commonly when I'm talking to you about weeds that come up from seed, I'm talking about ones that germinate in the fall with the winter rains and ones that germinate in the spring with the warmer soil temperatures and how we deal with them differently. But I've noticed that cheeseweed will germinate any time you irrigate if the seeds are present. And if you do allow them to go to seed one year, you will have a significant seed load in the soil. I don't think solarization, which is what you're talking about, covering it with black plastic or clear plastic, which is how you generally solarize, is going to kill those seeds. It just doesn't work that well. Solarization is often touted, but then when I see people actually do it, it doesn't really work. Uh, it gives somewhat limited control. Cheeseweed, I have found hose off, hose, you know, like a hoe, H-O-E, very easily at the two to four leaf stage. Uh, just a few minutes with a hoe will make a huge difference. And the leaf, when it comes up, is very distinctive. The first leaves are heart-shaped and very, very recognizable. And so my suggestion would be to get those out of there as best you can and then soak the area really thoroughly with a sprinkler and just go ahead and water and see what comes up. And my guess is that what comes up will be a carpet of another generation of each of those. And uh, you can then, if you want to spray, you could use commonly well-known herbicide. You could take a hoe and hoe them off. You could mow them up to a point, but the problem with cheeseweed in particular there's no mowing height low enough that it kills out the growing crown of the plant. You're just kind of chopping it off. I've, I've weed mowed cheeseweed many times, and it just sprouts out again, sprouts out again, sprouts out again. It eventually finds a way to flower and go to seed. So pulling it really is, in the long run, the best answer. One, tri- one technique I have used that makes it go a lot easier if you're having to pull bigger ones is you take a hose at a trickle, you set it on a plant, for as little as 15 to 30 seconds, and it pulls right out at that point. You move it to the next one and so on. So you do this at a sort of a comfortable pace rather than trying to pull them all out of the soil that's increasingly dry, which does not work. They break off in your hand. So this is a technique my son watched me doing one time that told me that it was apparently brilliant, Uh, where you're just taking a hose and really soaking the soil right around the plant for a brief period. So you can move it to the next one as you pull that one, and you toss them in a pile and haul away as many of them as you can before their seed scatters onto the ground. So I would remove the main plants, you know, get them mowed or chopped if that's what you prefer, but that doesn't really work with cheeseweed, unfortunately, and then water and deal with the seedlings when they come up. And I would expect you could get a significant germination percentage on the seeds that are there. And probably get that all out of there over the course of the summer, planning to perhaps plant this fall. When you plant, you could mulch very, very heavily. You could bring in, you know, you could call a tree service and say, I want your next truckload of grindings. I want to pile it on all around my yard, four, six, eight inches deep. I mean, I don't care how deep it is, as long as you don't bury the plants that you just put in. And that will smother them out. That will probably not be sufficient to smother a, a, a remaining crown of a, of a cheeseweed plant. I don't know. You might be able to, but I wouldn't count on it. So you probably should remove them manually. But then you could probably bury the remaining seed under there, and as long as that mulch doesn't get disrupted, it won't germinate, and the new plants will get established. So in the long run, your best bet is going to be to smother them, but I do think you're going to have to get the main plants out mechanically first. That's not great news, but the good news is that a seedling crop is extremely easy to deal with. Again, you can take out a hula hoe, or they call a scuffle or action hoe, Those work very, very well for that kind of thing. For the seedlings of cheeseweed and groundsel, which are, and sow thistle, which will come up, uh, whether at the two to four leaf stage, honestly, most weeds are pretty easily controlled at the two to four leaf stage, unless there's something that comes up from bulbs, rhizomes, tubers, you know, perennial plants like that. Most annual weeds are pretty easy to hoe off at the two to four leaf stage. So try to get to that population as early as you can in the process. I'm saying this as someone who, by the way, has just finished the process of chopping down chin-high mustards and oats on my own property. So, you know, I'm just like you. I've got the same problem out there. I just look out at a half acre of it and go, well, at least it's making nice wildlife habitat. Okay, I don't think that was an easy answer. But um, Don, what fruit trees would you recommend that would get tall enough and wide enough to also provide good amounts of shade? Okay, using fruit trees as shade trees. Mature walnut is too wide for the location I'm considering. Well, yes, a walnut would definitely do the job. They're huge trees. Height of 12 to 30 feet would be fine. Width of 10 to 15 feet would be great. it will get full sun from about noon onward. Any suggestions? Or we could talk about flowering or small shade trees. Well, I know a couple of fruit trees that will get that big without becoming major nuisances necessarily. Um, Pluots, actually, I can tell you. Having grown pluots and let a couple of them grow relatively naturally with what we call a central leader or modified central leader training technique where you do train it up like a tree, I chose to do that with two of them. uh, Because of where they were positioned, I thought they would look very nice there. And then I've been carefully thinning them out and and so on. They're pretty close together, so the two trees basically take up the space of one. I did two because you need the cross-pollination of the two different types in order to get fruit. They're about 15, maybe 20 feet tall. And equal spread. They tend to have, unlike, pluots are plum-apricot parentage. And they're more like a plum in most respects. But in their growth habit, my experience so far, at least the older varieties, have been more like an apricot with a somewhat spreading habit. They're actually lovely trees. The only drawback to having pluots of that size is a very, very, very large amount of fruit. And it's hard to get at it without using a stepladder but what you can reach most of it with a stepladder. I would suggest that at some point you may want to take the center out just for fruit access. And the, the sheer volume of the fruit is pretty astonishing, but I've never had people object to, to being given a bag of pluots. They're actually pretty amazing. So they would do that. Those are among the stone fruits. Those are the, the few that I can think of where I wouldn't discourage it because you're not going to get such a heavy fruit so that the branches are going to break. You're not going to have all the pruning complications you would with peaches and nectarines. So pluots are a good possibility for that. And uh, just remember, whenever you buy. A Pluot, you need to check the label and ask about needing a pollinizer, another type of either Pluot or Santa Rosa plum to cross pollinize. In some cases, two Pluots will do the job, two different types of Pluots. For example, Flavor Supreme with Dapple Dandy, for those of us in Northern California, great combination because they ripen about six weeks apart. One of them, the later one, holds on the tree for three, four, five weeks. So you get pretty much a whole summer of Pluots with that combination. Flavor Supreme and dappled dandy. A couple other fruit trees, of course, that would get big enough, well, figs. I mean, you'll have more figs than you know what to do with, but figs will easily get to 30 feet and spread, but they also take very well to pruning. They're basically... um, Zero input trees in Northern and central California, they will grow even without summer irrigation once they 're established. They grow better if you water them. They produce more than most people know what to do with in this area, and they 'll get bigger than you want in most cases we 're typically talking to people about controlling the size of their figs or we 're selling them slower growing dwarf varieties like Blackjack or Violette de Bordeaux or a couple of the other very slow growing smaller types because backyard orchardists typically want that. But if you want one, that is going to be a full-size tree. Black mission, brown turkey, Cadota, white genoa, all good examples of figs that will readily get to 20 to 30 feet and do it rather quickly. They're pretty big trees, very dramatic, very bold. Um, Definitely draw wildlife when they're fruiting, birds and others, and produce more than you know what to do with. I would also mention persimmons. Uh, If it's a residential setting, uh, having a persimmon like mine would probably be a bit of a nuisance. I have a Fuyu persimmon. That's the firm textured one. Mine is about 30 feet tall, about 20 feet across. And it sets in a light year, about 400 fruit and in a heavy year, close to a thousand. And obviously we can't reach most of that fruit. So we end up being very charitable to the birds. Uh, The cedar waxwings and and other larger birds absolutely love them. But bear in mind, a lot of that fruit is going to come onto the ground. So it's a pretty soft, squishy fruit to have in a normal residential setting. Most people don't let their persimmons get that big. There's a quick question. Is it better to water new trees with a drip system or with sprinklers? My answer is whichever will give a thorough watering, I use both. Uh, I typically use drip, but i got to run it long enough. I run drip on new trees or young trees for a couple hours to give it a few gallons of water, and people always look a little startled by that. I want to water the whole root zone and past it. This is really important in establishing new plants. I want to water the, the width of the, of the root zone and, and wider and the depth and deeper so the roots will continue to grow outward and down. So I give a few gallons when I do. Uh, I use drip systems. I'll use two 2-gallon-an-hour two emitters, and I'll run it for a couple of hours. Sprinklers work, but the problem with sprinklers is that they tend to distribute the water all around but not very deep because most people don't run them long enough. My actual preferred way to water new trees is with a hose, but that gets a little tedious if you have a lot of them. Why doesn't anyone sell potentilla ground cover anymore? Everybody, anybody remember potentilla? It was this ground cover that looked a lot like an a ornamental strawberry, a low grower with a, a pretty leaf and a yellow flower. It grows fast, makes a quick cover, makes a pretty good lawn substitute, widely planted in the 1970s and 80s. And like dichondra, it gets flea beetles, which damage the leaves, and then it gets a crown rot that causes it to die out. And so I remember selling potentilla and also discussing with people how to manage it when you got this flea beetle and die-out problem. Flea beetles, you know, you could treat for them, but most people don't want to do that. You could just rake the whole thing out, mow it close, fertilize it, look lush back, grow back real lush, I should say, and look really good for a few months, and then they'll get the flea beetles and the die-out problem again. So that's why most people don't grow potentilla ground cover anymore. Uh, All right, this is a a short question, sort of. Maybe I'll keep it a short answer this time. We'll talk more about this as it gets warmer. I've heard you say it's okay to plant in the summer or to plant in any season. Then other people tell me not to plant when it's too hot. So can you explain more about this? Oh, I'd be delighted to. So the characteristics that affect successful transplanting. Air and soil temperature, wind and humidity. Those are factors in the evapotranspiration, the use of water by the plant. Uh, The condition of the roots, how big, how small, whether they were broken up, spread out, what you did to them, or how root-bound the plant was, preparation of the roots as you plant, spreading those roots out. Susceptibility to crown rot. So some plants, like California natives, are very vulnerable to that Phytophthora that we talk about. The soil moisture status, higher in the spring, much lower in the late summer and fall. And the aftercare or watering. And plant groups vary as to which of those things matter the most. Uh, Warm soil. Moderate air temperatures lead to very fast root and top growth after transplanting. So when the temperature conditions are mild, like I will say like 70, 70, 80 degrees, that's great transplanting weather. Soil moisture is there and, they, you know, and, they, and you're able to give the watering that it needs. Brief hot spells are not harmful if the plants are properly watered. They do stress the plant a little bit, whether it's just getting established or already established, but they're brief. So those are not terribly harmful. But the last thing I mentioned there, the proper watering or aftercare, as we call it, is absolutely key when planting anywhere in the arid west. Uh, California, Central Valley, the Bay Area, Southern California. I'm sure those of you in the American Southwest know this, that we don't get any rain. Well, in the Southwest you do. We don't get any rain from now until sometime in October or even November. So we control the water supply. That's good, but we, do, we are responsible for it. So that means you know, if you're going on vacation for three weeks or a month after you plant something, probably not the best time to plant because you won't be there to keep an eye on it. Sprinkler systems aren't perfect in terms of adjusting for variable weather. Um, smaller plants that you put in, whether it's a zucchini plant you're putting in this week when we're in the 90s or a, a tree that you're planting in June, uh, we'll need water, uh, well, I won't say a tree because I'll come back to that. Smaller plants need water daily for the first couple of weeks or maybe every other day depending on the weather. And then pretty quickly, they can be watered deeper and less often. Tomatoes that I put in the ground a week ago, I didn't actually have to water for another three or four days because we were unusually cool, and they're already rooting in. I can already tell that they're getting to the point where I wouldn't need to be quite so attentive, but we're going to be dry and perhaps a little windy. So you have to monitor for the first couple of weeks. That's really the key thing. Perennials, shrubs, trees, things you plant from larger containers need water, thorough soaking, enough to water the root ball and the soil below and around it every two to three days for the first couple weeks. That's the key thing. And if you've got a system that does it, great. I prefer to check by hand because then I know I'm giving the plant a really thorough soaking. I keep watering cans out or I'll have a hose nearby, and that's just part of the evening walk around is watering the newly planted things. But a drip system will do it if necessary, as long as you know it's putting out a high enough amount of water and covering well. But after two to four weeks, most of those bigger plants can be adjusted to the watering schedule you're using for the rest of your landscape with some attention to during periods of high temperature or wind. So really it's that follow-up care. So you'll commonly hear that fall is best for planting, and it does have some significant advantages. In particular, um, it's cooler, obviously. Uh, In shorter days, there's less moisture loss, usually. The soil is still warm, so the roots are growing. Uh, So the plants will put out new roots to support them the next year, at least in theory. Uh, The biggest issue uh, for fall, biggest benefit of fall planting is less likelihood of those, the Phytophthora disease, because we're getting below the temperature range that's optimal for that. So particularly California native plants, which are very vulnerable to those diseases, fall planting is usually recommended for them. But the drawback of fall planting is, one, some plants it's not suited. Subtropical plants, citrus, avocados. Things like that. Anything, Lantana, uh, Bougainvillea, is anything that's going to be a little frost tender the first winter that we're planting a little bit out of its optimal range should have as long a growing season as possible to get established and get more wood developed going into its first winter. That'll be better planted in the spring or early summer. We've also noticed that uh, the climate trends, climate change, include some changing fall weather patterns in California. Water use by plants is going to be higher if we're going to be warmer, and we have been, if it's going to be windier, and it has been. Last October, we had five north wind episodes here in Northern California, each of which had evapotranspiration rate comparable to a July day. Very gusty winds. And uh, so we may need to push our planning recommendations even further, even later. Perhaps winter is going to be better than fall. Santa Ana winds in Southern California, as you know, now extend into November and December. Your fire season is now year-round down there. And that was not true when I was growing up down there. So these drier conditions, and bear in mind that the soil moisture status in fall is the lowest in California, anywhere in the lowland parts of California, That's going to be at any time of year. And our rains are often not coming in until late November. So it's a little more challenging to adapt to the watering and soil moisture conditions at that time of year than it perhaps was in the past. So there is no season that's best. Each season has advantages and disadvantages. Bottom line, it's the aftercare by the gardener that makes the difference. We'll talk more about planting in hot weather since people are still planting their vegetables, planting herb gardens, doing landscape projects as we get into June. We'll talk more about that as we get into the warmer season, how to set your timer if you're going to be going away and you have newly installed plants in the ground. And what that means when I tell you to monitor them daily, but don't necessarily water them daily. It's going to depend on the conditions. We'll talk more about that in a future edition of the Davis Garden Show here at 95.7 FM, KDRTLP Davis, California.